Welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is physical preparation coach Ryan Williams. Ryan is the head physical preparation coach for football at Waynesburg University. Ryan is the co-author of two books with Buddy Morris, who is the Arizona Cardinals head physical preparation coach. The two books that Ryan and Buddy have authored together are American Football Physical Preparation, which is a fantastic ebook that I have, and their recently released Ironworks Preparation. On this episode, Ryan and I discussed Ryan's background and influences, what Ryan thinks are the worst and best things about the sports performance profession, principles that drive Ryan's organization of training, physical preparation for American football, Ryan's thoughts on program design and periodization, energy system development for American football, Ryan's advice and resources to all coaches, and much more. This is a really great episode, guys, and I hope you really enjoy the show. Okay, Coach Ryan Williams, it is an absolute pleasure to have you come on to my podcast. Uh, just for the listeners, we try to hook up about a month ago. I actually have it written down here in my notes, the 24th of July, but... The, uh, the the internet connection at the time was terrible and in fairness to Ryan he was so patient but I just said listen we're going to have to wait till I get back to Ireland so home now two days and uh, the gentleman that he is he made time for me straight away so Ryan thanks so much for coming on and uh, just uh, give the listeners uh, a bit of a bit of um, a background uh, check Hey Robbie uh, no problem thanks for having me on I'm glad we could finally do this <laughs> internet uh, willing yeah, yeah yeah like you said I'm I'm Ryan Williams I'm I'm a strength and conditioning coach or better term physical preparation coach over in the states um, located in Ohio and western Pennsylvania northeast, northeast Ohio and Pennsylvania um, been doing this probably about you know, seven eight years now um, working with football mainly and then kind of just all athletes alike across the board so great stuff Ryan, who would you say have been the biggest influences on you, both as a coach and then as a person? Well, so I guess if we want to start away from coaching first, person, um, what's funny is a lot of the coaches I had when I was younger definitely had an influence on me. Um, I was fortunate to have two very good sport coaches when I was growing up. A, my high school football coach who instilled a lot of the psychological and mental um, kind of lessons and principles and um, just various, you know, good, you know, good character, accountability, things like that. Um, he was all about giving your all and giving your best effort and everything like that. So that very, very well resonated with me over my career. Also, my final year in basketball when I was in high school um, my coach was very um, very involved in my interest in strength and conditioning because he enabled me to kind of implement some things with our team he was very open minded to what I had to say and if I could kind of explain it and rationalize it to him then he would let me implement it but besides that both my grandfather and father were very large influences on me as just being a man I guess is the best way to put it um, but as far as coaches go 
in terms of physical preparation. Really, the first biggest influence I had was Louis Simmons. I think he was the when I first got on the internet when I was like fourteen or fifteen. He was the most ready available author. I guess is the best way to put it. And I, I actually explained this on Kier's website. It seems like how, or I'm sorry, Kier's podcast that we did. It seems like everybody gets started. I told him, you know, I started in my dad's basement when I was, or my parents' basement when I was 12. Kept going with weightlifting and strength training and all that stuff. Got to the point where I finally got the internet. Was reading all the websites from Elite FTS, Westside Barbell, Deep Squatter. Um, higher, faster, stronger sports, which is Kelly Baggett, the vertical jump Bible guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, just kind of kept going with it. So Louie was first, got a hold of a lot of the um, texts that Louie recommended, Science of uh, Sports Training by Thomas Kurz, Explosive Power and Jumping Ability for All Sports. And then when I stumbled upon Elite FTS and really started going with that, person that probably had the biggest influence on me was James Smith, um, uh, formerly of the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, he really opened up the most doors to other information that influenced me. And so then by by virtue of his recommendations, Louis, or I'm sorry, not Louis, Charlie Francis, Vladimir Isren, Yuri Vergashansky, um, Found the Seekin. Um, Buddy was obviously kind of in there with James and everything like that. And it's just kind of gone from there. There are some other behind the scenes um, coaches that I've talked to that definitely influenced me a lot. Um, individual by the name of Ryan Gracious, who's now a strength and conditioning coach at the University of Wisconsin Whitewater, which is the perennial Division Three national championship team um, for football. And uh, also, Frank Rizzo, and then um, a few of my other good friends and colleagues. Yeah, uh, James, uh, I actually had James Smith um, do a seminar here in Dublin, Ireland three years ago, and it was, it was great to finally meet him. He, you know, he stayed for a night in my house, and he's been a massive influence on me. But it's funny, I think, like Karen, yourself, everyone, everyone kind of goes through, you know, like, you know, everyone goes through the kind of west side uh, stage where they, you know, they read everything by Louie and then they get turned on to like more of the Eastern European stuff for Kajansky and Ishrin and and um, obviously uh, science and practice of strength training you know by, by uh, Zasadorsky and Kramer so it's it's funny that like uh, a lot of us who kind of have similar sort of top roles to the training now we, we kind of go through that sort of same learning curve yep exactly it's it's the more I've talked to people it's pretty much the the line that is walked to kind of get to where you're understanding everything for a sport. Yeah, yeah. Ryan, uh, a question I always ask um, all the coaches that come on the show is um, actually, well, the the original question used to be, what do you think is the like the worst thing within a trained profession? Then I started to think that's a really negative question I always ask. So mm-hmm. I I'm gonna make it a double barrel one. What do you think is the worst thing you see in our profession? But then conversely, that what's the best thing about our profession? The best thing about our profession is that there are so many dedicated coaches that are willing to go the extra mile, but they, in the same part, the negative part would be that they are so limited to the access of knowledge that they had when they were learning to be a coach that they only know one way and it's not the best 
best way because they just were not informed very well mm-hmm. or just misinformed completely through their studies at a university. But I guess what band-aids a lot of things it can help is that those coaches are very good at motivating athletes and being 100% invested and in getting those athletes to buy into their program that they do still get results. So a lot of things are hidden with, you know, if you have an individual who is invested 100%, it's going to give their full effort. Even if you have a subpar and improper training program, you're going to still get some results because the human body is still a very good um, machine at adapting. There's no doubt about it, regardless if you are throwing the absolute wrong stuff at it. Otherwise, you may know exactly what is correct for the athlete for any type of biology and physiology and biomechanics, but you can't get your athlete to fully buy in, and thus you still get subpar results. So there's always kind of like a two sides to it, and I've noticed that over my career, where it's like, man, how in the world? Like, I'll give a perfect example: is my high school high school football coach doubled as our strength and conditioning coach, and I have seen him turn kids who had no business playing um, football and especially being able to contribute because he gets them to buy in to that weight training, speed training, and um, fitness training that he provides for them, albeit a very cookie-cutter, throw some shit up against the wall, see what sticks type of program, hey, he gets results for for, um, his athletes. But at the same time, um, I've seen individuals who know exactly what they're doing and they just can't get their athletes to really fully understand the program and they don't give them the buy-in and they don't get as good as results as what they could. You know, it's, it's funny you bring that point up because uh, the last sort of three, four months, like I, I, uh, I've been heavily you know, studying... Uh, training uh, methodology and periodization and just I'm in a mode right now where I'm studying a lot on uh, on, on um, physical preparation and, and sports training in general and I'm actually reading yeah. I'm reading Bompa's newest uh, periodization book that he did with Greg Half and something that struck me in the book was that one thing they've actually said three or four times through the book is that they fully believe that to often develop the athlete one component is to explain to, like actually educate your athletes on sports development like as in you know give them like actual talks and lectures on what exactly this whole process is and then listening to your interview with uh care i found it interesting that your guys were like i wish i had a little manual or something and this is how your first book came about was that you said oh you want a manual i'll, I'll put some stuff together and it's kind yep. of it's kind of got me thinking of doing similar stuff back here at home with with the I don't know if if you're familiar with the Gaelic games here they're they're traditional Irish sports mm-hmm. like hurling Gaelic football sure they're actually lactic aerobic too they're a field based sport but I've yep. also I've also had a similar idea to do something similar for my guys a basic manual you know explaining things like the energy systems and the, the biodynamics of the sport and maybe not using those terms necessarily but kind of getting to understand a little more but i just found it fascinating in periodization because i've actually never read that you know usually read training methodology books and they're all like they're all they all just talk about oh you know this physical uh you know general physical preparation specific physical preparation 
um, and then the actual psych, psych, uh, psychology of the athletes. You know, so you have your physical, your technical, tactical, and the psychological. But then another component they spoke about was actually educating the athletes. So maybe just for our listeners, I'm very long-winded, by the way. <laughs> maybe for the listeners, just speak about like you know this idea that uh, the manual, your guys, how important you think it is to actually you know educate your guys for that buy-in that you spoke about that's how i kind of came into this question and then maybe start talking about the the, the first original book that you ended up doing with uh, with louis the physical prep uh, physical preparation for american football sure um yeah you said it best is if you have if you have guys that understand your program by nature they are just going to be able to complete it and get better results out of it it's the same as playing of a sport you can't. You're not going to be unable to understand the sport to be successful. There's no way you're going to ask any athlete that plays football or basketball or anything to not know the rules, understand various tactic schemes, the technical abilities and skills that are needed in each position, and everything like that. And you, know, you can look at like the great athletes like Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady. All those guys know so much in and out of every position on the field that they're just able to better piece together their performance. So in my mind, I wanted to provide as much information and knowledge to the athletes I worked with, and that's what I strove to do when my first manual um, came out. We had a very large change, I guess is the best way to put it, from what our previous program was to what I wanted to do. Um, the previous program was very strength-based and, I guess, conditioning-based, and mine is very much more speed and power-based and um, to hit very, the bioenergetics that are needed in the sport to go away with any of the kind of the medium intensity things, uh, anything that would be considered lactic and glycolytic. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to kind of explain the guys why, because I can sit up there and speak scientific jargon for two hours and have every kid fall asleep and have drool hanging out of their mouth because they had no idea what I said to them. But to make sure that they understand it and they are able to get the most investment and the most out of their program, I wanted to make sure that I was able to explain it to them. So, yeah, back in March of 2012, I set out to accomplish that goal, which was Division Three football. Um, for college, your athletes go home over the summer and you have no access to them with the exception if they call, text, or email you. So I wanted to give them pretty much a bulletproof, foolproof um, text and program that they could follow to a T and um, able to complete in its entirety over their summer period. So I got it done from about March to May. I sent it out to everybody over the summer, and I actually got some great response from it. We had, I had kids, you know, with hill sprints. Most people would understand, you know, if you follow Charlie Francis, you only want a slight in, uh, incline, just a slight grade. Like you're looking maybe 10 to 15 degrees if you're looking off of a parallel line. Well, I had a kid. You know, not everybody has perfect access to a good running hill. He took a picture of his hill and asked me if it was too steep or not, (laughs) which just tells me, you know, 
he was very interested, very invested in understanding this training program that he was given, and he really wanted to improve. And I had people calling and texting me about, you know, what exercises they could change with injuries and things that are bothering them, what to do with scheduling their training around work, with train with scheduling their training around the summer classes they were taking and if they're going on vacations and just very reasonable, legitimate questions because, you know, in Division Three football, you're still gonna have a very much a lot of life going on because it's not as involved as the Division One school, and you're not getting paid, or you weren't issued a scholarship to do it. So, yeah, it was pretty cool to see how much the guys bought into that program. Because at the same time, if they did very well in my program, I would reward them with a lot of freedom within the weight room in terms of the guys wanting to do extra curls, extra shrugs, any type of beach type workouts to you know build hypertrophy up in their upper body because realistically any football player or any 18 to 22 year old male is most likely going to want to build up their upper body muscle because they want to attract girls it's that simple so it's pretty much like hey you guys get me or give me what I want which is for you to do your warm-ups your mobility your speed work your power work stretch after the workout as long as it's within reason I'm completely fine with you going ahead and getting some extra work in the hypertrophy stuff so but yeah that's how the book became um, I don't know if you want me to go ahead and go into more of the story of that or oh yeah yeah well like, again uh, for the listeners too I mean uh, Ryan and Kier covered this in, in uh, Kier's podcast but uh, yeah I definitely want to do for my listeners too um, you know I, I found it very you know I, I found it really funny too like the story you know how you met Buddy and all and he's like have you got a man you're like well actually I do <laughs> so right. uh, yeah yeah definitely go go ahead yeah so after um, I was hired back as a strength coach the following year because I get I back up real quick for your listeners most of them will probably find this very interesting I was actually the head of physical preparation for our football team while I was still playing yeah that, that, that was when I heard that I was like that's that's fascinating yeah so I was 21 years old and I was going to college playing football and coaching for the physical preparation aspect mm-hmm. so that would have been in the fall of 2011 after I finished playing um, there's a lot obviously a lot less of a load all I was doing was going to class and then I was working as our physical preparation coach and um, you know in the evenings or in the mornings or however it worked out so that would have been the spring months of 2012 started on the manual in about March April of 2012 go back to camp um, I was hired on as a graduate assistant mainly working with the physical uh, overseeing the physical preparation for our football team and then working with the linebackers excuse me and um, when we got back to camp in August ran through all that stuff had a very good training camp Um, Buddy Morris at the time was located in Pittsburgh um, Pennsylvania which is where he grew up and um, he coached at the University of Pittsburgh for in different stints, I think it totaled close to, if not over, 20 years. He was there three separate times. <laughs> yeah. But he he was on FreakStrength.com, which is Mike Guadango's um, website, who was a former intern of Buddy's. 
and at the time I was getting a lot of information there because Buddy like bounces around everywhere and you can't always he doesn't you can't always know where he's gonna pop up next. He's kinda like where's Waldo? And you know, you want his information, but it's always been scattered throughout the years on the internet and it's very hard to come by. Well, you know, I saw he was starting to answer questions on freak strength through for Mike Wadango to kinda, you know, build up some business and everything like that. So during that time period of training camp, we wanted to do a conditioning cat test for our guys because, like I spoke of earlier, they're gone for three months and you have zero contact with them and you have no idea what type of fitness level they're in. Excuse me. So when they came back, we wanted to make sure in the most non-invasive, non-taxing um, way, we wanted to make ensure that they were fit enough to participate in training camp and obviously eventually for games. So I came up with a conditioning test that was a combination of short acceleration sprints specific to the bioenergetic, biodynamic, and biomotor demands for each position grouping. In American football, I break that down as linemen, which are the individuals who are closest to the ball combo players who are slightly removed from the ball, which would be like a running back, a linebacker, a tight end, and then your skill positions, which are the furthest removed from the ball, who are wide receivers, cornerbacks, and other defensive backs as safeties. So that, that kind of just ran a line of how long they were going to sprint. And then to offset that, we did tempo runs to get the aerobic um, component um, tested. So I kind of developed this conditioning test and I just wanted some approval from a person I tested or I trusted, I'm sorry. So I sent it out on Freak Strength to Buddy and he emailed me back and said, hey, that's awesome. Like, that is a great test. Have you implemented it yet? And I kind of told him at that, by the time he got back to me, I was like, yeah, this is what we saw. You know, this is the program we previously had over summer and it was great to see that all our guys passed it. And, like, I had all the times. I can't think of them off the top of my head. But, like, for a 30-yard sprint, we wanted to make sure everybody was running under, like, a 4-3 four, a four, or a 4-4 four, four throughout all 10 sprints or something like that. And that they weren't decreasing their time too far. So, so I got to talking to Buddy, and he was training out of a gym in Pittsburgh at the time, a couple NFL players, and he asked me if I wanted to come up and if I had the manual. And again, like I said on Kier's podcast, being 21 and, and broke at the time, I was like, well, absolutely. So I went up there, showed Buddy my manual. He goes, hey, do you want to write a book? We'll sell it on Elite FTS. And of course, absolutely. So I went back to Waynesburg that year. Um, hopped on the computer, took me about three weeks to knock it out, edit it, expand it, kind of beef it up and make it a little more um, resonant with coaches and athletes who would be purchasing it. Shipped it out to Lead FTS and uh, finally in September of 2013 is when it was released as American Physical, uh, I'm sorry, American Football Physical Preparation. Yeah, and for uh, for those who, who don't have the manual, it's it's uh, like it's a, it's a breath of fresh air. It's uh, funny. I have a friend back home here. He listens to the podcast too, and uh, he, he's a he's a top quality physical preparation coach. His name is Owen McGuire, 
Um, he actually mm-hmm. he he works for Exos. He uh, he did an internship at Exos and he works from back here. But he also uh, freelances as a uh, as a physical preparation coach back home. Mm-hmm. And um, he works with a, with a fairly high level football team back here in Ireland. But he loves Buddy Morris. Like he anything with Buddy, he's always like get Buddy on the podcast. He just loves Buddy Morris. And when I got that ebook or when I when I saw that ebook was available, I was like, hey, do you see this? And I was like, try not to wet yourself too much. And he was like, oh my god, he finally has a book. And he like he bought it and read it like in one day. And like me and him were just back and forth saying, oh, it's brilliant and it was a great book. And uh, right. like like kind of Kerr said in his podcast. Read, reading your manual was like it was kind of similar to like reading triphasic training for me in that it took a lot of the eastern european stuff and made it far more digestible uh you know like you, you spoke you know you in your manual you speak about the concepts of uh of Ishrin and his his um training uh, his compatible qualities his uh, right. his training residuals you know you also spoke about um some stuff in there from verkachansky uh, so you know, it, it was just it was really well put together, really well explained, and it brought a lot of that sort of Eastern European uh, concepts of training together. And again, as I said, made it very very digestible. But re- right. but recently you've uh, you've released a new book now, Iron Preparation. Um, so maybe just tell the listeners how, how that came. But I know that came in conjunction with Joel Jameson, who the listeners would know very well. I'm actually very good friends with Joel. I communicate with him quite regularly. Right. Yeah. Um, it would have been November of 2013, right after the ebook was released. I was kind of getting some feedback from the people that had purchased it earlier, early on in its release, that they would like a physical copy of it. So I knew I'd spoken with Joel a few times and just emailed here and there, and I knew that he had his Ultimate MMA Conditioning and BioForce um, books that were both very successful. And so I figured, oh, what the heck, I might as well try and contact him and see what um, see what advice he has for me. So I got a hold of Joel, and he said, yeah, absolutely, let's turn it into a, a physical product. So we kind of talked, and we, we put it on the back burner, because he obviously always has some sort of business venture that he has going on between the BioForce stuff, um, the pro trainer, um, now with the BioForce project, um, conditioning courses, all that stuff. He has, a, you know, he puts out top-notch information yeah, he does. for co- coaches and athletes alike that they can. What's great about it is it's is so pragmatic and useful the second that you read it. So, so finally, and I think he called me. We we emailed back and forth, just trying to get a game plan. I did expand the book slightly. I took at that time period. Buddy was up in New York working at a performance training center in late 2013, early 2014. Um, he finally, in February, was offered a job with the University of Buffalo. He took it for about six weeks, but then he was offered the head strength conditioning job at the Arizona Cardinals, so obviously he jumped on that opportunity. Um so during that time period, I went back through the book, edited some things, um, added added a little information in the body of the text, and then at the end of it, added a few programs, one being a, hypertro- a hypertrophy program for football. So it's a very good off-season program, like immediately following like a GPP phase, or even immediately following the season, depending on the age and level of the football player. Um, also revamped the famous GPP program that Buddy first created back in 2003 
circuit training is kind of what it's most infamous for, and um, a lot of the mobility, the dynamic warm-ups. I know a lot of people use that as a basis. That was right when that all of that was becoming very um, hot, I guess is the best way to put it. It's funny how you see trends in strength conditioning and realize that a lot of this stuff has been around for years and years and years, but sometimes various areas of the world are just behind and that just is the nature of how information flows and is passed on. <laughs> but so that's in there. He updated his GPP program for the Arizona Cardinals and we put that in the book. And so finally in April of 2014, Jewel gave me a call I was actually, I went back to school to finish a few classes towards some various allied um, health and pre-professional medical classes, and I was taking um, genetics, calculus, organic chemistry, and physics at the time, and he asked me if I wanted to fly out to Arizona to shoot a video course with Buddy, and the reason I mentioned those classes is that that weekend that was the only weekend we could all make it out there was the week before my finals. <laughs> so so I, I get on the plane, fly out on fr- a Friday night, get there Saturday morning, and um, we go ahead and start shooting what is, became to be known as the BioForce Project. And I said this on Kier's podcast, and I'll say it again. If you're going to purchase any product first to kind of get introduced to buddies and my information, I would 100% recommend the video course because it is extremely pragmatic and it's better to see what Buddy is speaking of theoretically and myself speaking of theoretically and then see it implemented and coached in real time because just to kind of give a brief overview of that there's several different modules the first modules being an introduction to bioenergetics biomotor abilities and biodynamic needs for american football then there's some methodology then there's some programming and then there's the practical applications which are the videos of Buddy coaching me through every component of any workout that you would do to prepare for American football. That goes from uh, the warm-ups, just basic um, heart rate and circulation increase exercises to some self-myofascial release, any type of mobility drills, your calisthenics, dynamic stretching, power speed drills, speed training, power training, strength training, and um, any type of fitness training also, and conditioning. So you get to see the whole picture of how uh, workouts are pieced together and how the exercises are um, executed. And at that point, you kind of have that understanding and seeing all that going into the two books it's going to give you a much better picture and understanding of what's being said on paper because you have most people are visual learners going to be able to have saw and heard an actual person tell you what a lot of that information was and what it meant so 
Yeah, I think you said on uh, on uh, Kira's podcast too that yeah. uh, that yep. uh, Buddy uh, Buddy like hammers you sometimes for your technique. Yeah. And you were like, yeah, I'm a pretty good athlete. And then he's like, you know, get your fucking foot straight there. And you're like, damn it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was more behind the scenes than what you'll see in the actual video course. But we were doing some movement and mobility stuff. And at the time, I was actually in fairly good shape, especially compared to what I am now. <laughs> I was pretty fit because I was working out four or five times a week. And I played recreationally play basketball in various leagues and some softball and everything like that so I thought I was in pretty good you know pretty good shape and everything like that he showed me all these different movement patterns and how it's linking and some stuff from that he'd taken from martial arts um, and uh, you know uh, what's his name I can, it's Feldenkrais is his last name I can't think of his first Mo- name Moist, Moist Feldenkrais yeah Moist Feldenkrais and just some very you know it's kind of like the next step after you understand basic stuff is to kind of go into the esoteric um, understanding of the human body to really fine-tune it. And at that level in the NFL, you absolutely have to go to look at some of that esoteric stuff. You know, you can say that basic fitness is the first level, and then you can say overloading um, the athlete is the next level. And then you're looking at speed of movement is the next level. Then the five, then the next level is to really hone in on their skill and their specific sport. And the esoteric stuff at the very top of the pyramid is to really fine tune movement and like kind of like the mental part of the um, of the human body and how it integrates itself. That's kind of how I view um, like a pyramid and you know kind of like a hierarchy of how you would develop an athlete and that's kind of what buddy was looking at with a lot of that um coaching that where he just was ripping me apart with you know how i move my toes to my ankle up to my knee to my hip to my low back and my my scapula and everything like head position all that it's a lot of things that a less experienced coach who just has not been exposed to anywhere the near amount of you know just pure observation that buddy has over 35 plus years just would not notice but because he has done it for that long he is that much better and aware of all these issues and is able to address them so yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the esoteric stuff is where the magic happens exactly exactly yep and you, as long as you have you know your the bases covered when you get the esoteric that's when you can really make a difference but again the caveat being that you have your base is covered first and you kind of work your way up to that yeah absolutely just uh I, I know we've touched a lot there already on sort of a little bit to do with training methodology because we've spoken about the two books um but just for the listeners a, a question I, I ask almost every coach on here if i was to ask you what is your training philosophy what are, what are the principles that drive your thought process when it comes to the organization of training how would you answer that uh, well, well, the first thing you have to look at is the biology of whatever you're trying to Achieve. develop. And that goes from if I have a 32-year-old housewife come to me who says she wants to just get in shape as any type of general person would want, you still have to look at what biologically you're trying to do to achieve that goal. Mm-hmm. So obviously it's a lot more complex with the sport 
because you have to understand a substantial amount more of facets and dynamics and any type of you know considerations for the sport but so just just before you go on would you would a would a sort of way to sum that up be a needs analysis yeah you want to look at the bioenergy i always say the top three bios bioenergetics biomotors and biodynamics yep Yep. and so that's the first thing you want to look at then you're obviously going to look at the age of the athlete the training so biological chronological and their training or how long they have been participating in physical preparation of the athlete Um, any type of anthropometric um, characteristics that the athlete is very can be unique I guess is the best way so long levers, short levers, um, next being injuries, any type of malformalities, um, you know, it, like you said, a needs analysis. You want to inform yourself about the athlete and then what they are trying to achieve is the first thing, bar none. It doesn't matter how much you know or you talked about philosophy earlier. I have essentially no philosophy and it's that the athlete's body is always right. And I could care less if I have to throw linear periodization and have them go pick up that cow that Milo so famously did over the course of the cow's life to get them to get stronger because that's how untrained they are. Or if I need to go ahead and use a block training system or a conjugate sequencing system because the athlete is so well adapted and so highly developed that the only way you can develop them is to use concentrated loading. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you know, the, the one methodology that resonated the most with me, and I have worked on this um, for a very long time, in terms of how you integrate it, is vertical integration. To me, and I've talked with Buddy about this, and it's to me, it's still. I would have to work on it for a very long time, and I don't have as much data and ability to do that as I used to when I was in a collegiate setting. But vertical vertical integration to me, because all means are present at any given time, but only their volumes and intensities fluctuate. Just to me, is the best way to approach any programming organization or periodization excuse me problem because the way I look at it is you can lay across every component that will go into a training program on on like a left on a left side of like an excel sheet and you go through the weeks and you can fluctuate your intensities and volumes and that's exactly how Charlie Francis would program his uh training and the way that I would do that is okay at this time period knowing logic and how um, things are pieced together you're going to have a higher volume of hill sprints to start then you are going to reduce the hill sprint volume and go to more flat sprinting and then you're going to reduce the volume of that flat sprinting and move to longer max velocity sprints that's one logical sequencing of um, intensity and volume is you're going from the least intensive sprint, a hill sprint, to the most intensive sprint, a flat, full, maximal velocity sprint, which would be takes place from 40 to 60 meters. 
So and if we're looking at intensity being the velocity of a joint angle or the velocity of the center of mass that's tra um, traveling because of the resistance from the hill and then the reduced distance of an acceleration sprint to the longer distance of a velocity sprint, the intensity increases over that time. Mm -hmm. Same going with jumps. The least intensive jump would be a box jump because the lesser gravity because you are landing on a higher step or box or however you would like to term it you do not have as much force at the impact of your landing next one up would be to just do like a broad jump because you are just using a parallel to where your takeoff is amount of gravity so the force is increased because you are maybe 32 inches lower on the ground so you have that much more force to absorb when you land. The next one would be a depth jump or before that a weighted jump. If you have a kettlebell or a dumbbell in your hands, the adding that load causes higher ground force contacts with every jump. You move up to depth jump because you are now using gravity to absorb the force and you're stepping down, your intensity again is increasing. So the way I look at it is you want to follow a logical sequence in terms of how you develop that. And you can look, a lot of people would kind of hear what I was saying, and if you could look at it, um, that kind of looks like block training, whereas you move from block A is strength, block B is power, block C is velocity. But at the same time, you could do that over an entire career of an athlete, which is what I started out to do when I was in a collegiate setting. When I had a freshman athlete or a completely untrained athlete, the only thing they were going to do for the very first year they were in my program was do hill sprints or do a resisted sprint in the form of having like a partner um, resist them and kind of give them just enough um, resistance to where it slowed them down slightly or hold a very light band around their waist to, again, reduce or control the speed that they were sprinting and of course we have mixed in a little bit of acceleration sprinting and velocity sprinting when we could but the volume that they would do would be so minuscule that it's more or less just for to kind of prepare them and expose them to a very small amount of that stressor so that when eventually we would progress to it in the following year and that would be their be what they did more it wouldn't be completely new to them so that's kind of the way that I like to program and um, organize and methodically change the means. And the methods, of course, there's a bazillion of them from contrast method, complex method, circuit methods, a lot of the Verkashansky stuff, dynamic, if we're looking at strength conditioning, sub-maximal, maximal, repeated effort methods, um, you know, repetition method series repetition methods you know all that stuff falls under well what's your mean what's the total volume what's the total intensity so you go again it's like a top-down approach where you get or, or a deductive approach where you get your big stuff done first and you understand what you're trying to achieve and then you just slowly go down to the very esoteric stuff which is when you're going to find out the exact volume the exact rest periods and the exact execution of the exercise. Mm -hmm. so hopefully that kind of, uh, again, um, I would need a piece of paper and a board to really be 
Yeah, just explain that. Like well, I for you know, I'd say there is some listeners that that would need that and would like like myself. I program very similar. Like vertical integration uh, is pretty much how I program too. And for for listeners who are not too too uh, aware of what vertical integration is, it, it was popularized by Charlie Francis. So if you get any of Charlie's materials, you you'll hear about it there. Essentially, like a, a sort of way of summarizing it is that all qualities are are being trained all the time but you're emphasizing particular qualities by manipulating the volume and intensities at particular blocks in your training so you you know you're you're emphasizing particular qualities particularly compatible qualities if you look at Ishran's work too if you marry that with integration and you're just kind of maintaining uh, other qualities with like very low training loads Um, right exactly it's it's exactly a high too but uh, something that I actually just I, I want your take on too is in terms of Ishran's block periodization and then Verkhozhansky's conjugate sequence system like they, there is a lot of very there's a lot of similarities between the two in your opinion like what exactly are the real differences between those two because they are yeah. quite, they are quite similar in that they use training residuals they, they pretty much use sure. saturations in their blocks but sure. I, I hear people saying that they're, that, that they're different but anytime I read I'm like they almost look identical to me. I'm not too sure I see a huge difference here. Sure. Before I get to that, I will say one article that kind of gives a better picture that, or a visual picture that everybody could um, take a look at is I wrote an article for Milan Jovanikic on, um, it used to be, I can't even remember what his uh, website. Con- used, contemporary training, wasn't it? Yeah, contemporary training. I don't know if he changed his website name because I I have not read as much as I used to read. He he went recently. to a, he went to a membership website, so I'm not too sure. I think some articles are only for membership now, and uh, right. others are free. So I'm I'm not too sure which is available and which isn't available for free. Yeah, it was written a while ago, but if you Google programming and organization for all sports, or I think it might have been called biological programming and organization. It's on his website, and it's a two-part article that could very well explain that. The other part is when I talk about like the sequencing of exercises from least intensive to most intensive. Yeah. A couple, a couple of the tables. Excuse me, I have to sneeze. Bless you. Oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, it's allergy season over here in the states, and they're, they're hitting me pretty hard today. That was probably that's probably I'd say that's one of the longest bless you's in the history of mankind. Like how far I'm, I'm about like five thousand miles away from you. <laughs> yeah, you know what? That's actually very true. <laughs> uh, but um, in the in the American football physical preparation, or even the Ironworks book, the same tables in there. When you go to the components, the high components section. For sprints, jumps, weights, and um, medicine ball throws, the intensity is shown from saying like, okay, a basic hop all the way down to a depth jump, yeah. and then there's an, an, the, the difference in the intensity. Same with the weight of medicine ball and the methods or loads of weight training, and then again, speed training, resisted sprints all the way up to overspeed sprints I guess if you're even going to do with the wind behind your back or slightly downhill or something of that so that kind of gives again the picture of how the intensity changes and everything like that but yeah 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 sorry to get off track there I just wanted to clarify that no 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 no, that that makes perfect again it makes perfect sense to me yeah yeah perfect right 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 so 
and as I said, but, as I said, that's that's exactly how I program too. Like I I organize training through vertical vertical integration. You know, again, right. em, right. em, emphasizing emphasizing certain qualities while you maintain other qualities. Exactly. But in terms of block training, um, I would for I first was introduced to conjugate sequencing or the conjugate system. I don't even know what you would want to call it. The way that Louis Simmons calls it, and my understanding is really that there's unidirectional training and there's complex parallel training, and there is very very less no fine line between them, and that's what people usually get wrapped up with. They think they are either doing unidirectional or doing complex parallel training, but with so many things, there's a fuzzy gray area between there to where you can kind of get a little bit of both depending on what you what your needs are for your athlete. Yeah. And that's kind of where vertical inter, vertical integration comes because, all right, well, if you know at, we really need to work on strength, by no means are you going to completely throw out every other component, which is what those Verkashansky workouts that are given in the very first edition of the special strength training manual, the one that came out all the way back in 2006 that is like a spiral bound book. Yeah, you know, yeah I know that one. I, I have it as a PDF. Right, exactly, so do I. And that's what most people saw is they saw that they're only doing squats for four weeks and that they're only doing barbell jumps for four weeks and that they're only doing depth jumps for four weeks and then they everybody kind of like scratched their head and like had a, a poor epiphany or a misled epiphany is probably a better way to put it and like oh well this is what I have to do and you realize no you're still going to do some accessory work in terms of maintaining those qualities you developed in the earlier blocks. Exactly. Like if you need to do something for your hip extensors, you're going to do an RDL or a glute bridge. If you want to do something for the back extensors, you're going to do a hyperextension or reverse hyperextension. Um, you're still going to do maybe a deadlift or anything else that is supplementary to your primary lift, which is completely fine with the squat. But and at the same time, people don't realize that you're still going to do stuff for upper body. You still should be doing sprinting. But the volume and intensity at that time when you're emphasizing one other component that is unidirectional in its emphasis, again, emphasis, not just in its entirety, that's yeah. not the only thing you're doing. So that's the whole issue with the conjugate sequencing system or block training system. And again, a lot of the definitions and the semantics of all those programs get lost and misinterpreted because of what Louis Simmons has termed conjugate training, conjugate periodization. For what he does at Westside, it's just a method he created over all of the um, programming text that he got his hands on back in the day. But realistically, I mean, you could say it's unidirectional in a way because the only thing they are trying to develop is maximal strength. So by nature, that is unidirectional. And in a very small amount, they still work to develop general fitness or work capacity or stamina. And in a very small volume and intensity, they still develop hypertrophy of the musculature to, again, help with leverage for 
for some of their lifts and to ensure health and joint integrity. So when it comes to block periodization, which is Vladimir Izarin, his big keys are more along the lines of residual trainings and um, the reciprocity of training. So the first thing, the first um, point, the residuals is when you go through different blocks of training, you want to know how long you have before you lose the training component that you just developed. So maximal strength is one that lasts the longest. It lasts after a very intensive loading phase with both volume and intensity, the maximal strength will last from anywhere from 25 to 35 days, depending on a myriad of factors being the athlete's level of training and the loading period that you just had. Okay, so if you want to go away from maximal strength and you don't want to put too much energy into it, you can get away with using lesser loads. And again, what I think some people think they do with block periodization is you're not doing maximal strength at all. Well, you can still go do two sets of five at 65% and keep that residual longer, whereas if you didn't do anything, yeah, you you, per, you prolong that residual. The the analogy I use is like if you charge your 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 phone, your the battery in your phone, and you let it go down to like twenty percent, but then you charge it back up to like forty percent, and then took it back off again. You're gonna the battery's gonna last longer. That's a perfect analogy to use. It's exactly yeah. Is, I'm actually probably gonna steal that analogy and use it with people when I'm trying to explain this. From now yeah, because training training residuals when you're trying to explain someone is very tough because. In 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 Isherin's, uh in the in, in a paper I have here in front of me from Isherin, he's like uh, it's the what do you say it's the, re- the retention of changes induced by systematic workloads beyond a certain time period after after the cessation of training. So like you say that to someone, they're like, what? Right, exactly. It just means the benefit. Well, yeah, the benefit you're just, going to get off something after you stop training. Right, and it depends on how long you stop training, and if you still do a little bit of training over that time, you're not going to get in trouble for it. There's not like a residual training police that are going to come and say no 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 that's incorrect you can't do that yeah it's good it's going it's going to be different i think that's what a lot of people get wrapped up with especially when they when i first introduced this to a lot of my colleagues um in university and people i kind of connected with they were like i just don't get it like so we're just supposed to completely stop doing maximal strength stuff for 25 to 35 days and it's going to stay the same i'm like well no what's going to do is it's probably going to decrease a little bit as is with any type of reduction in total load over time. But if you hit it systematically with enough total load by the interplay of volume and intensity, you're going to be able to prolong that out over, for me, it was like over a season where residuals really help are if you're in the season, you don't want to use your energy stores and for GPP, yeah, well, for exactly, you don't want because it's not the most important thing at the time. Yeah, the game for American football is on a Saturday. All right, so you're probably going to have two, maybe three at most, um, opportunities for some workouts throughout the week. Well, one week you're not going to need to go up above 65, 70 percent with anywhere from 15 to 20 lifts. Well, all right. We're getting to the point where it's been two to three weeks. I'm getting closer to where that residual can go away. I need to have a developing load. Mm-hmm. So there's, you could say, develop 
and he actually, Ezrin has that taxonomy of developing, maintaining, or um, retention, and then recovery, restoration, loads. There's three kind of um, separate definitions and, uh, you know, like I said, taxonomy that he uses to work. I guess you could say a developing load for maximal strength could be 70% with a total of 20 lifts. Mm -hmm. And a maintaining load would be 60% with 15 lifts. And a restoration load could be 50% at 10 lifts or something like that. It just it also it always is going to depend on the athlete because everybody is different. There's a kid that is 18 years old and has very limited strength training. He could develop with loads that are restor- restoration loads for a guy who's lifted for seven, eight years and has a much higher um, total um, output yeah. than that individual. Yeah. So, yeah, but I guess to answer your question about the difference, the block... The, the, just, 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 just before you go on, the, like I, I was mainly asking. So I, I'm not, I'm not really speaking about wet, the West. I call it the West Side system. I'm, I'm actually, right, I, was, right. I was purely speaking about Isherin's block raisation versus right. ver, versus Verkajanti's conjugate sequence. So the the uni, uh, the the unidirectional uh, conjugate sequence system. Yeah. Because when I read those, I'm like, these are like almost the same. But the reason I ask is, I I read a paper by Isherin where he. He's not that he's slating, but he's saying that that Ishran, or that Verkajansky's conjugate sequence system model that it isn't as ideal as his model, and I'm kind of like, well, what's the big difference? Between, like both of you are like a block model. You both saturate qualities. You, you both use a, a a kind of phase potentiation in that that there's a very deliberate sequence of the blocks, making sure that the 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 preceding block is a foundation for the succeeding block. Like they, so I'm I'm just always I'm just wondering, am I missing something here? Or sure. So I would say. A, I believe they were not maybe rivals isn't maybe the best, but they were they were both trying in the scientific world trying to solve the same problem. Yeah, yeah. Tasked with it, so it's it would be like Nike and Adidas arguing over who has the best shoe. Yeah, <laughs> I guess to make an analogy. Yeah, so yeah. I believe that block periodization is more fine-tuned and complete because it includes so many different um, parts that give you the full picture that you can go ahead and use and implement. It doesn't just have unidirectional training. And I would say that Verkashansky went out to solve the task of how do I how do I increase the biological output of the organism? Yeah. That's what he went out to solve the task with. Isarin went with, how do I come up with a complete system that is applicable to a, a broad spectrum of sports? Because you can use this and I, realistically, you can tailor it to pretty much any sport that need, at time needs concentrated loading. And realistically, Every sport out there, you're needing concentrating loading because once you go from the GPP phase, you're going to special. Well, you're getting concentrated loading of your special or specific sport training. Yeah. So yeah. during, again, I'll just use football because that's the sport that I know the most about. Well, 
if you can look at like a loading of if you just tracked it and used any type of measurables during the football season, you are doing infinitely more special physical preparation um, training than what you do in the off season. You do very little in the off season, so by nature you are doing unidirectional or concentrated loading during the competitive season, and you are maintaining the residuals and um, the reciprocity of training with your GPP train. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, to me, they're not necessarily, like you said, different. They just were tasked with solving a different problem. Yeah. And to me, uh, block the block training system or a conjugate sequencing system is more of a training program where block periodization is more of a system. You yeah, can yeah. implement Verkashansky's block training system or conjugate sequencing system within block periodization and build everything else around it. <laughs> I don't know if that's the best way. And go ahead with what you were going to say. No, no, I, I was just going to say, like, at the, at the end of the day, for me anyway, the, the two biggest influences on how I organize train now are Charlie Francis' vertical integration and Ishran's block periodization. So, they're they're the two main sort of systems that that I've used to organize training over the past I'd say what are we three years now since since I've really started to understand them mm-hmm. but it's just it's just it's purely just a, a selfish reason why I asked because when I'm just right. re- when I'm reading literature I'm just kind of like because like so when I was reading uh, in super train when you read about the conjugate sequence system it's like you know you know it, it uses a it's a it's a you know it's a block method it's unidirectional it saturates qualities the reason is because they don't want to develop um, qualities concurrently same stuff that Ishran says you don't want this simultaneous development of qualities because the organism doesn't get enough uh, exposure to one particular quality to develop it, it, yeah. uses, it uses a sequence of blocks in a method that makes sense in that the you know the, as I said earlier on the preceding block is a, is a foundation for the succeeding block like strength and then you'd go to power you wouldn't go power and strength or speed and strength you'd also have strength first and then right. power speed and then, and then, like it would say that that uh, the the conjugate sequence system uses long-lasting delayed training effects, which is another term for residual residual effects. So exactly. I I was just like, these are all the same things. Like I don't see why. And the, the, another kind of and just to go off slightly as well is when I read that paper by Ishran, he's slating Metviev in it, and and uh, or sorry, he's not slating Metviev. He's slating like old linear periodization, and he keeps saying that old linear periodization is is the, is the development of multiple qualities in one go and it's like if you ask anyone about linear periodization they would all say no no it, it's it's just moved from one quality to the next where there's no retention loads so i'm just like exactly i'm like what the hell is going on here why is he like like if you ask anyone what's the linear periodization like, oh it's where you do anatomical adaptation and then you stop doing that and then you do strength and you stop doing that or hypertrophy then you do strength into power and there's no retention it just goes from one thing to the next and it's like a real annual monocycle sort of uh mm-hmm. whereas an issue like he was like oh uh Block periodization is to is, is the reason it was developed was to stop uh, developing multiple qualities at once, which is concurrent training. And so I'm just like, what the fuck is going on with all these authors? Right, and I guess the answer to that, like I said, I, to me, a lot of it comes down to the, that fuzziness and that gray area. And there's no fine line to where you are doing one thing or the other, but you have to know your athlete. Whatever all those terms. Yeah. And yeah I was just gonna. I was just gonna say that. Like this. The, the, like. Uh, like. Even for the listeners, the last twenty minutes, of what we talked about really doesn't matter. Like a fuck, to be honest, it's, it's all bullshit. Exactly. If you go back to like, if you go back to earlier on when I said to Ryan, what, what, are you, what's you know, 
how do you think about training organizer training and you were just like what biological adaptation are you looking to get and then and exactly. then and then from there like you know you can argue fucking methods and means after that till you're blue in the face but like what is the actual biological adaptation you're looking to get that's what i love about james too james is like i look at training through science first and then i go from the top down rather than people are always like well you know you should do a squat over a split squat it's like oh, who cares exactly because you can get the same goal and you're just looking yeah you're looking at kinematic forces um i'm sorry kinetic forces the kinematic of the joint angles, um, the force outputs, the mechanical tension in the muscle, the biochemical fuels and substrates that are being utilized. That's what you need to worry about and not the minutia of one rep versus three reps and seven reps versus 12 reps. And if you're doing linear or concurrent, you have to use your eyes and your ears, as Charlie Francis said, to see if the athlete is actually improving. Mm. That's what it comes down to. And to me, all those methods and methodologies and periodization and systems are fantastic because they make you think and realize how to progress over a long time period and make you and especially when you look at residuals and reciprocity and um complementary training modes and everything like that Mm -hmm. so you understand like okay if you do glycolytic training and maximal strength training at the same time your or strength i'm sorry yeah glycolytic and maximal strength those are ones that are non um complementary and they do they not reciprocate well so you're 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 taxing the athlete or the biological organism with two vast not two different um, environments in terms of biology to where it's not going to best adapt to yeah. get the results you want. Sure, it's still going to do it. You're probably going to see some improvement, and it completely depends on the type of athlete you have. If you have a beginner, realistically probably not going to make a big difference because they're going to increase somewhat in both of them, albeit probably lesser if you had planned better. Mm -hmm. If you have a very highly trained athlete and you do do that with them, they're probably not going to improve in either of those two qualities. And you're going to be sitting back scratching your head like, well, what the hell happened? I I don't get it. But you have that information at hand to realize what complements what and what goes together. You know, I use it as a... um, and I used a food example once and saying like, all right, well, you have a hamburger and you have all these, and a hamburger is speed training and you have all these condiments that you can put on your hamburger and some of them realistically go better for taste, which would be, you know, improvement or I guess the ultimate goal. And okay, so if you put ketchup on there, all right, great, that works. Ketchup could be maximal strength training. Yeah. Right, I put I put mustard on there. That's um, explosive strength training. Great. All right. Well, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna throw some cottage cheese on there. Well, that's not gonna taste very good. And that was glycolytic training. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's the issue. And some people are gonna be like, all right. Well, I I like that taste. It's not too bad. And that's your beginning athlete. <laughs> it's still gonna work, but it wasn't the highest quality hamburger or the highest quality um, training adaptation that you could get and I guess that's one of the analogies that I've tried to use in the past yeah yeah no I 
like again, me and you are, are both on the on the on the same page in terms of how we're organizing training, and I I highly encourage anyone that hasn't looked into Isherin's work to, to look into it. I, I and I actually feel his book is definitely one of the easier books to read. You know, in terms of definitely like transfer training, the one from Bonnetrucks are are tougher reads, and, and yeah, Verkashansky's first true. books so to read. But I, I found Isherin's Block Periodization books very easy to read, and um, like I mean, if if you can grab the concepts of um of compatible training qualities and the use of uh, res- residual training effects um, you know you're, you're going to get a huge benefit from his book and then also mar- if you marry that with the vertical integration of charlie francis you know you, you have a very very good sort of system but again going back to the big rocks that we spoke about you need to understand do a needs analysis of the game or of the sport or, or the person who's in front of you and and decide what is the goal of this person or of this program so again what is the biological adaptation you're looking for once you understand that everything else can fall into place that's so about having those big rocks in place first but uh yeah absolutely you know it's just people don't like basic answers so you have to fill the rest of the podcast with the minutia sometimes <laughs> right yeah there's no doubt about it yep. I, not, not that i was minutia i really enjoyed that i love those conversations anyway but oh, stuff. absolutely i've had plenty of them over my brief career yeah. <laughs> and involvement in uh, physical preparation just in terms then, so I, I'd imagine because you are very influenced by vertical integration on a, on a micro-cycle level, so a weekly schedule, I, I take it you use the high-low model? Correct. Yeah, so uh, just for the listeners, you know, some, most of them have heard this before, but maybe just get into the high-low model and, and why you use it. The reason high-low works so well is because of the complementary training, I guess, modes. Maximal output and low, or so I guess aerobic and strength go together very well. So if you are going all the way at the highest outputs of maximal strength, explosive strength, and velocity, and all the way at the lows of aerobic fitness with capacity, endurance, and general fitness training, those complement each other. They complement each other very well within a micro, meso, and macro cycle. So that in itself just works very well. And every and the vast majority of team sports or ball sports are alactic aerobic. So again, the two things that you need to develop, high and low. So that marries itself very well. Mm. And even the strength sports, it goes together very well. Sprinting is what it was developed for. Um, hurdling. Uh, the, the throwers or field athletes, throwers and jumpers. So it just it works very well for ninety percent of the athletes you are going to have. Even power lifters, realistically, it could work very well. And you just want to be having them going out on their low day and running tempo runs. <laughs> because that's the you know the, the Charlie Francis model would um, entail. But yeah, it works very well for football because it is an alactic aerobic sport. So in your high days, you are going to address speed and velocity, your jumping ability and explosive strength, and then your maximal strength and um, for with, with strength training needs and weightlifting methods. And on your low days, you address fitness components. So aerobic endurance and um, capacity with tempo runs. Um, abdominal moves and medicine ball work and then even circuit weights or circuit jumps and there's so many different ways to achieve the goal of the day or the goal of the component or mode that or ability that you need you have all these different means that you can kind of use 
times where I do a high, low, high, low, high five days a week, usually do that with a very untrained athlete because they have such a less intensity um, hmm. of output. They're able to recover quicker because it's just they, they're not at, they're not trying to recruit as many muscle fibers and their central nervous system does not get as um, fatigued as an athlete that can output more. Um, I've used sometimes I've actually gone low high off low high because the weekend in college most likely on Monday those guys are a little dehydrated if you know what I mean and a little tired from the weekend because of their extracurricular activities that they were doing I think I'm sure you've experienced that with some of the college athletes over here in the states that you've uh, dealt with when oh they yeah out. oh yeah we have do some drinking so well why in the world when they're in that depressed state because alcohol isn't depressant are you going to come in and do high cns work with them on a monday well if you do the circulatory and the low intensity work on monday you can flush all the toxins that were built up in their system out kind of get them potentiated and then the next day come in and they're probably going to 98 percent of the time in my experience if you do that they're going to have a better workout on the for the high day on the Tuesday after doing a low workout. Yeah, it's funny. So, it's funny you say that. Sorry to interject. Uh, I just read. I, I read that six-part article series from Stu McMillan and Matt Jordan, and McMillan said that he does something similar. That the Monday is more like of a loosen out, get you going, because he felt a lot of his guys came in from the weekend very sort of drained. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a there's a fine line with rest and recovery, depending on the. Um, the, the fitness preparedness level of an athlete because sometimes extra time off or complete days off are poor for them. Yeah. Most, most of the time when, and I can speak as a former athlete to this, most of the time when you're going to have your best performances, you're very active leading up into that and you've actually had a little bit of fatigue and then you super compensate within like a 24-hour period rather within a 48 to 72 hour period yeah and or if you get that 48 to 72 hour period you had two low workouts prior to your last high workout that potentiate you and then you're able to perform at your best i can think of that in terms of football stuff and any type of speed power and strength outputs generally that i've used you know as, as testing markers before so I kind of learned that the hard way because I used to always think, oh, well, they come off the weekend, they should be so well rested. Well, I spoke to this um, and Keir, with Kier on his podcast on a Sunday, which is the day after a, fo- uh, a competition in um, collegiate uh, football. My guys would come in and they would be absolutely shot on a Sunday. So what we would do is I would just watch and listen to how they would walk jog and run and if if they were very kind of active and talkative and jogging and running around a bit was well, like okay well, we, we got some energy let's go ahead and do a little bit of a high workout if they're dragging and they're just walking and nobody's talking and everything like that about what they did last night or the game or whatever then I'm like okay let's throw out the foam rollers I'm gonna go around and get some PNF stretching and I'm sending them down to the training room so that they can get some therapy and before, 
when I first did it, I was always stubborn and wanted to go ahead and get, because I only have so many opportunities, go ahead and get that GPP residual covered and make sure that we were putting in a little bit of the load so that I kept it. Then I realized, well, hey, well, I just need to get them to the next day. So the way our practices rolled and how that all happened is our most intensive practice was usually on a Wednesday, whereas we had you know, the off day or the recovery day where we do some very light stuff on Sunday. Monday we come in and it's, again, another light workout for in terms of special preparation, like out in the field and the field training we would do. Tuesday it gets kicked up to like a medium level and then Wednesday is the day that we're going to go ahead and kind of hammer each other a little bit and get after it because then we have two a medium day and then a light day after that to where um, we're going to kind of back it down but we're looking at getting that super compensation curve to come up and peak again for us on Saturday which is obviously the ultimate goal because we want to do our best on the competition day. And when I say medium, I don't mean that in terms of intensity. I mean that in terms of the in interplay between volume and intensity. Intensity is always going to be alactic aerobic, but the loading that that combines with is going to be what I would scale a medium. And I kind of touched that on a, in an article for Elite FDS called Program Management in Division Three Football. And that, that kind of briefly outlines what we did from a married physical preparation and sport skill technical tactical training standpoint, how we kind of blended those together to, to look for like a unified goal to where we're not two separate sides trying to butt heads over how we're going to get our athletes most prepared for Saturday. And, and I'm sure we spoke in the James about program management and how to integrate the sport training side and the physical preparation side. There's by no means can ever be a separatist um, approach taken. They have to complement each other and they have to integrate together to achieve the ultimate goal, which would be sports mastery or you know the highest level of sport performance and execution and everything like that so that to me is how you know just it just worked out so much better when when we finally you know from experience how we would do it when i was an athlete in my early years my freshman and sophomore year in college to where i kind of had a bit of a say in it my senior year and i was experiencing it myself as an athlete and then seeing it that following year when i was only a coach and just talking with our athletes and asking them how they felt and how they were performing. And actually that year that we were able to really marry the two sides of the equation together to really become unified, we went 10-1. and one. Um, We ended up losing uh, one game and winning a bowl game that year, which ended up being probably the best season in school history. So, you know, the proof is in the pudding, I guess you could say. Plus we only had minimal injuries that year, which is another measurable that you can definitely look at to track to see if you are improving, let alone sport results. If you have a bad year, you know, it's never going to be cost from just one side of it. Um, you can be technical and tactical. And then I'll give you an example. When I was a senior, <laughs> we lost 
five games, which in American football you only play ten, and if you lose five games, it's a mediocre to poor year. Well, we had only lost those five games by a total of thirteen points, which I'm sure you having a little bit of knowledge or having a good amount of knowledge in American football know that thirteen points over five games is nothing. It's absolutely nothing. Mm. That comes down to a play a game. And we had a very poor special teams performance that year, and we didn't have a kicker that was um, of high quality. So our defense and offense and our physical prowess was fantastic, and we were in every single game. But at the end of the day, when it came down to our tactics for that special teams and in the kicking game, we just couldn't get it done, so we ended up losing. So... Yeah, you have to be able to understand every side of it. And this is a part that, you know, I talked with Kier about this, how frustrating it is for him with dealing with the sport coaches in rugby because they think if they did poorly that they need to hammer them. Well, usually if they do poorly, you need to back it off. And if they did really good, you can go ahead, and they're feeling good, you can go ahead and hammer them and get after it a little bit. But you, the more rapport and the more integrated, unified approach you can have amongst every coach involved to get to that goal of having the best performance and winning your game or setting your personal record in whatever event you are in, and that's when you're going to have the best results in, with your athletes. Ryan Williams, you're fucking music to my ears. <laughs> I could speak to you all day. Marry GPP with SPP and attain sports mastery. That's it. Podcast done. All right. Uh, no, no, no. Sorry, it's not. We're not done. <laughs> I was just, I was just saying that. No, I've, I've one or one or two more little questions. Um, sure. Just actually one or two things I want to touch on there in terms of the um, recovery and going into competition. You were kind of saying that sometimes that that kind of have a, that can have an effect on people. I've I found the exact same thing, and I don't know. Maybe you've heard this from Dan Faf too. Dan, Dan Faf spoke about it in that that brilliant it was a it was actually a youtube series it's, yeah. it's, it's not on, and it's not on youtube anymore i, I have the audio to it though he gave a a, t- a lecture on sort of training methodology to the canadian athletics and he spoke about you know he never really found that this idea of tapering in his mind worked the way it did in the literature and he was saying he yeah. found that if you gave that athlete that whole day off before competition or two days they came in very sort of lethargic and i've often often found the same way both as an athlete when i was one and as a coach so I'm definitely more of a proponent of doing something the day before or even like the morning of, but definitely the day before, like a real short, really, really, really short in, in terms of volume and low in terms of volume, but very high in intensity. And I've always found that that's been much better in terms of how the how my athletes, and I deal more so with teams, how the team went into the, the following day's game. Sure, yeah. I mean, you can look at examples from when uh – Ben Johnson accidentally bench pressed more on his last workout yeah. before his uh, world record run in the Bay. Or I'm sorry, not the Beijing. That's what that's Seoul, what's going Seoul. on right now. The Seoul Olympics back in 1988. Um, I mean, you can look at what or what my understanding of the Oregon Ducks do um, with little potentiating workouts the morning of a game, the day before a game, etc. There's always such that fine line of what you're going to do. Like you said, it's going to be such a small volume, but a higher intensity, intensity right before your, your competition because you want to potentiate and stimulate the central nervous system. That's what's going to give you that high output. The, the, the 
morphological, physiological, biochemical adaptations are such more set in stone for a long time that doing more conditioning, doing more fitness, or any type of like endurance type work is not going to do you any good in the acute setting. Yeah. But doing something for the more um, the more plastic, which would be the nervous system potentiation, you can you can influence it much more in the acute. So that's why those workouts to potentiate work so much better than what um, just a you know the recovery restoration workouts do. Um, I have never been able to really test it with the, my team as a whole, but I can say on Fridays and on Saturdays. I've let my athletes go in and do a little bench press workout and work up a little bit, and the next day they come out, and it's like they're a whole different person because they're stimulated peripheral. I'm sorry, peripherally. Yeah. And that has an effect globally or from the central nervous system, you know, centrally, that helps stimulate motor units and cause an increase in the firing speed, um, the size of the motor units um, recruited, synchronization patterns, all those great things. They have, you know, chemicals in terms of um, the catecholamines and the neurotransmitters that help fuel um, various activity running through their body. So all those things biologically and physiologically are beneficial to a fantastic performance. So, I mean, there again, there's the fine line between it to where you're not going to be able to go out and do on a Saturday morning, oh, you know, four sets of 40 yards or a 40 meter sprint and then go do three sets of five on med ball throws, four sets of five on a squat and finish it off with some hypertrophy work. That's absolutely going to fry your athlete. No doubt about it. Um, but if you go in and part of your warm-up, you're throwing an eight or ten eight or ten pound med ball, about eighty to ninety percent. You know, not a fully maximal. You're stimulating those lower threshold motor units. You're getting the biochemical um, release and stimulation that you want, and potentiating the central nervous system so that you are able to better, you know, perform and have higher outputs during your competition. So, yeah, I, I've noticed that a million times. Um, I did it with my punters and my kickers a lot. When it was a big game, I purposely would um, program the previous weeks with lesser loads and work them up to a higher load right before the big game because I wanted them to have, you know, every – there's so many – components and dynamics that go into like a team sport game. I'm sure you're aware of that. Um, with the punting, if you can get an extra five to eight yards on a punt average, that can make a big difference in how your defense stacks up against another offense because the offense is in a worse field position. They have to travel the field farther and it's harder for them to score. So again, any difference can count. So there's times like I, I we had my, had my punter work up to, 85, 90% of a training max hits it for three sets of three, two sets of four, somewhere along those lines, comes out and his average was 
536 on the year, and his average for the game was 42 or 43. So that just goes to show you, you get that peripheral potentiation of motor units. He comes out in his global movement or, you know, sport, what's the word, the, the competition exercise that he has to perform, which is punting a football, he has a higher output in because he was stimulated. Whereas if I just told him to bunch 60% and just take it easy, it probably would not have worked out the same. Yeah. So, and there's so many, you know, so many considerations and so many things that go into that because, hey, there's been times where it has not worked for me. <laughs> I will be the first to say that. Um, I had a backup quarterback who was like a runner who didn't play that much try it on a Friday and really bench press and get after it and do some heavy rows and a little bit of jumps. And he had like the worst game of his life the next day. And I was like, hey, that's probably on me. Maybe me telling you to do what you did had an effect and I, I read that one wrong. But you have to continue to experiment and figure out and learn your athlete and know the methods and the means that you can use that are going to get you the result that you want. Yeah, it's going to come down to the individual too. Like, uh, you know, again from Dan Faf, you, you, you know, he's speaking about the kind of the guys who are a lot more uptight, a lot more explosive, tight too. You know, they're, they're, they're just, they're very neurologically well wired. They might need to be toned down a small bit where your guys who are a little more like lethargic, sort of, you know, laid back, they might need something that, that is going to kind of spark them up a little bit. So I suppose it, it depends on the individual. I, I would imagine too that the more explosive or the more type two a person is, the more sort of careful you need to be with doing too much in those sort of um, primer sessions, if you like. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And fortunately for me, I did not have a lot of those athletes because of the competition level that I was at. So I was able to get a little more aggressive with my experimentation. But at the same time, I still had those guys that were really highly wired, neurological, a lot of muscle fiber, you can just see it in the way they appear. They're very, very well-defined and uh, and tuned and everything like that. So, yeah, there's no doubt about it. And I can, I can even remember Dan Path talking about his controlling of his athletes drinking Gatorade or having therapy right before work. Yeah. Or, I'm sorry, before um, a competition. Same with Charlie Francis. It's like, hey, you go get some, you go have, see a chiropractor for free, and you, the chiropractor says that this athlete's hips are all out of whack, and he, and she, he or she goes and gets adjusted, and they have this perfect alignment, and they come out and they're doing starts, and they're like veering to the right, and they can't run in a straight line. I can, I can think of that example directly from one of the pieces of information he put out there, and so you have to be careful with anything you do with an athlete. Um, that's going to affect them mentally yeah. and even physically. Yeah, so. what, what, what I would say to the listeners too is that, you know, and, and this really should go without saying, if you are going to start implementing things like a sort of, I, I've heard the term primer session or, you know, um, uh, yeah, a, 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 exactly, a potentiation, that was the word, a potentiation session. Do, that, yeah. do them going into games that have very little relevance. Like, try it out first before you ever do, like, blindly going into a major event. Because that, exactly. that, that was Dan Fast thing. He was talking about, uh, you know, you get all these, uh, like, Fast kind of conversation was that everything in life is stress. Training, nutrition, therapy, everything's a stressor to the system. And if your body has not 
has not encountered this stress before it, it could have a very sort of like violence not really the word but it could have a very negative reaction so he, yes. he, he was given the idea that you get these kids one, one great one he used was uh the idea of stretching you know he's like you know you're always on yep. your, you're always on your athletes to stretch a training and they're like yeah 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 and they never do it and he says but when the big competition comes and they're out in the track and they're they're nervous and they've got nothing to do what do they start doing they start stretching and, yeah. he, and he's like they've never their body is not adapted to this it's a completely new stressor and then he says they're discoordinated and the same then when they get all these free physical therapists and chiropractors at a competition they've never uh-huh. been never been adjusted before and it's completely new stress to the system and yeah. they're, they're all uh, disorganized from a motor control standpoint so Ryan we'll, exactly. wrap, we'll, we'll wrap up here just one or two more uh, questions and we'll get through it quickly because I myself have to I actually have to go up to Ikea with my father he needs he needs me to help him out <laughs> he needs me to help him uh, out but uh just say, on the high low model, I've often seen people doing the upper body work on the low days. What's your what's your thoughts about that? Uh, because the upper body can be, it, the muscles in the upper body are small smaller than the legs. The the fatigue that is accumulated from any type of upper body work is nowhere near as great as what you do with the legs. Would you, would know, you would you still do a quote-unquote max effort upper body lift that day, or is it just more accessory work? There's been times where I have, and there's been times where I haven't. Mm. The best way I put it, my, my two favorite words of physical preparation are, it depends. Yeah. Same <laughs> with me. Same with me. Uh, it's, it's, it's always depends. I, I can't give you a, you know, a uniform answer. A black there's and white. There's been time where... You know, it depends on the goal of the block. It depends on the athlete. For the most part, I have no problem going up to maximal. Um, and again, maximal, you know, in a powerlifting world is over 90%. But maximal for an athlete can be 80, 85, 87 and a half. And, you know, we can even talk about like, well, I would much rather look at the recruitment. And if I had some sort of EMG scanner, like, well, will this guy give me his full recruitment on that lift? Not the weight he's moving. I just want. I'm worried about what the output is. So that's really what the goal is. Then absolutely, you can do that on a low day because it's not going to have the fatigue to that's going to hinder from the subsequent workouts or even the subsequent. You know, I heard. You know, there's the term seance. I'm sure you've heard of. Um, that was mentioned in, um, you know, every workout has several seances. It's kind of like the subsection of a workout. Mm-hmm. If you're going from, uh, have you have you heard that term before? It's in Verkajansky's book, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I, I, it's a very good term when you look at it. And most people just kind of like raise an eyebrow, and scratch your head when you use it. I'm actually uh, I'm actually happy you said it because I was I, I was trying to like what is that word seance? Yes, seance is how you pronounce it. I believe it's French, but I'm not 100 percent sure. I'm not a, uh, you know, I don't know about languages by any means. So, anyway, yeah, th- that work for the most part is not going to detract from the subsequent workouts or any other seances you do within um, the workout on the day. And yeah, it totally depends. I can think of times with myself, I did lower intensity on lower body stuff the previous day so if i'm in a, a training period where i want to go between 70 to 80 percent the squatting stuff that i did or any type of hip and knee extension movements i did might have only been 72 75 roughly 
And then on the upper body day, I might have been getting closer to 80 because it just does not have as big of an effect in the game of American football or when you're doing GPP program or GPP training where your next workout today is going to be heavily influenced with jumping and sprinting, which is the musculature, the local musculature that's getting affected the most and fetigued the most is the leg muscles. Yeah. It, 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 it's, uh, it's funny you said it too because uh, I, uh, I did a bit of... Um I had Mike Tashir, the powerlifter, do my pro yeah. do, do my program for a while, and you know, so his program and like it's it's widely it's out there. So like he won't mind me uh-huh. saying he won't mind me saying, but usually you squat it three times a week. You, you did a deadlift, you did the competition deadlift once, but you did another deadlift variation another time a week. So you, essentially, you squat it three times a week, deadlift twice a week, but you benched up to like six or seven times a week because again it's just nowhere near as stressful as squatting and deadlifting. and even psychologically you're like you know you say this one could you go into the gym every day and bench you're like yeah could you go in today every, could you go in every day and squat and deadlift you're like ah squat not. squat <laughs> i could probably do for a few days deadlift no way yeah you know, so. yeah and it's funny you brought up mike to share because the other part of it is you're looking at uh perceived exertion yeah with in terms of the output that you're going to do on that upper body day and and low, yeah. well if you want to work up to an eight or a nine on his rpe scale who knows what that weight is for that day? Yeah. And it may fall between 80 to 95. Maybe you're having a great day. You hit an 8, and it was 95% of your training max. Mm. And with the readiness being so fluctuating, depending on the athlete, um, you know, it, there's just there's so many. The, the, it, the it depends clause is what I like to kind of refer to. And you got to see what happens. And what's funny, they brought up Mike DeSure is um, he was actually – he spoke once at the gym that I kind of grew up with. Um, a guy named Brian Ranieri. He has a gym called the Workout Center, which is about a baseball throws from my parents' house where I grew up. So I'm pretty familiar with what Mike Teixeira does because Brian worked with him for quite a while and still uses a lot of his programming principles. Yeah, he's great. He is. So I'm going to wrap up here. If you can give me some quick fire answers because, uh, as sure. I said, uh, my... my uh, for for you and the listeners, my father's outside in the car and he's like, "Let's go." So, uh, just quickly, what what would your top advice be to all coaches listening? Use your eyes and ears before you make any decisions with your athlete. Oh, that's nice. I like that. Uh, the biggest mistakes you've made so far in your in your career, and uh, what lessons you've taken away from them? Being stubborn, stubborn, and too um, close minded, and the lessons would be to be more open-minded and listen to the athlete's body and what they have to say more than what you think is correct. Oh, maybe we should have done this for the whole show. You're coming out like Zen answers here. <laughs> uh, your top resources, and this could be anything, uh, books, DVDs, seminars, people to go see, places in the world, does not have to be even just related to physical preparation or sports training. It could be anything, spiritual book, business book, something that changed your life, whatever, you, you name it. <sighs> anything. Okay. Boy, you just really opened up. Um, You can take your time on this. He he can wait outside. Wow, this is going to be quite the answer. Um, Books? I really like to... Oh, boy, man. You really opened up a can of worms for me here. Um, Definitely, if you're going to see... I would go see Buddy Coach. Um, He's probably... Go see Buddy Coach if you can. Go see Dan Pat Coach if you can. If you're going, you know, you're looking at life experiences, books. There's so many out there. I can't just throw one out there. Of course, Super Training, um, 
added, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, the stress of life, why zebras don't get ulcers. Very good, yeah. Um, if, if, you know, you, if you want to, you can, you can uh, send me a list and I'll put them in the show yeah. notes. Yeah, that actually is probably what I need to do because I need a second to think about it. There's been a lot of books that I've read over the last that are kind of removed from training that have had a lot of influence on how I think about things. Yeah, big time. Um, one book called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. I haven't, Malcolm, I haven't, I haven't read it, but I've, heard, I've, I've read Outliers, obviously. But yeah, I haven't Malcolm read Blink. Gladwell is so famous for Outliers. Well, he has a lot of other great books that make you think about... Uh, um, Blink is very interesting because it talks about why people do what they do in terms of in the moment how they react to things kind of like sub, it's kind of like subconscious conscious mind type stuff yeah exactly and um there's all types of examples of stories about why people made the interpretations that they did so to me that has a heck of a lot of influence on what we do as coaches absolutely and what we do with athletes mm-hmm. so that's a very good book to look into um <clears throat> excuse me I really enjoy reading books on what's called epigenetics. Oh, me too. Yeah. Have you ever read a book called Biology of Belief by Bruce Lipton? I have not. You um, would you would love that book. He's a cell biologist. You'd love that book. Right. Yeah, I have to check that out. Yeah, th- those books and a lot of the biochemistry books that talk about how various environmental factors yeah. yeah environment and experiences that you go through affect your dna yeah shape is human yeah. what is yeah what has happened to it so to me and even the very end of verkashansky's the expanded edition of super training that last section that was added in added in there he talks a lot about moving dna you, you have to have some knowledge of cell cellular molecular yeah. and genetic biology to really understand it so you want to kind of get through a basic biology text and or like some powerpoint slides or whatever first before you go dive in that or else you're going to be scratching your head and have a headache after you read it um I'm trying to think of what else realistically other advice is you have to do any type of physical preparation stuff with yourself because you want to feel what that exercise or what that method or even methodology feels like and understand what your athletes are going through if you really want to best give them the advice. The reason I was able to resonate with them so much is because I experienced it for nine years, ten years plus as an athlete. So I kind of understood that. Um, Also, I'll put this out. John Meadows has had a decent amount. Do you know who that is? Oh, I know. Mountain Dog Train, I know him well. Yeah. He, his, to me, he has the most systematic hypertrophy um, system, I guess you could, uh, boy, that was redundant, if I've ever had a redundant statement. Sorry, right, we're now, we're now 40 minutes into a, a very intellectual <laughs> conversation, you're, you're, you're bound to have moments like that. Yeah, my, my, co- my coffee must be wearing off, so, <laughs> um, yeah, his, his stuff, and, and kind of the life, not like the life lessons, and everything he has is very methodical, and well thought out, and logical, that's a very he he gives a different perspective um, that you can take from. I really like a lot of this stuff, and I guess I'm trying to oh key concepts by Charlie Francis. Ah, it's, a, it's a great book. Yeah, that that ebook. If you can get your hands on that, that thing is fantastic, and you will learn so much. And then any and all programs that you can get from coaches, and you want to 
you can't ever take those things as gospel. Yeah. I've collected programs from coaches over the years that I've got from searching the internet or just going and meeting with them and getting that paper. You kind of look and see and you understand what they were trying to do biologically and you work inductively instead of deductively because you see the final product on the paper and you're like, okay, well, what was he trying to accomplish with this? So you're working backwards. You got to be able to work in your mind both ways to understand what somebody's going to achieve. Because if you see somebody out there, you know, doing a clean or like a power snatch, most of us are like, oh, why are you doing that? Like, it's such a stupid lift. Well, at the same time, if you work inductively, okay, well, actually, that was fantastic form that that athlete had. He's doing it for six sets of three with two minutes rest. Well, what does that sound like? That's any other type of jump or medicine ball throw training that develops explosive strength. So that's the inductive is seeing the final product and working backwards to understand what the bigger picture um, goal is. So that's another thing um, I would definitely say would be something good to look at. I'm trying to think of some other crazy books that I could throw out there that are really, oh, the the anti-fragile guy, um, boy, I can't think of his name. I know who you're talking about, though. Yeah, the, the book Anti-Fragile was very good. I have another book by him called The Black Swan. That's very good. Um, a book called Drive talks into kind of like motivational psychology, which, again, very important in athletes and coaches. Definitely. Um, needs. So, yeah. Anything else? Uh, no, but uh, if you if you come up with any more resources, you can just send it to me and I'll put them in the show notes. Just uh, actually one little I meant to ask this earlier on, and it's two little things. So you 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 trying to get into medical school? Did, were you trying to do that? Yeah. So I've had quite the um, career kind of. Um, you know what? This is a great. I meant to mention this on Kier's podcast, and I didn't. My advice to anybody looking to get into strength and conditioning is to take either chemistry, biology, biochemistry, cell and molecular biology, neurophysiology, physiology, etc. Any hard science major and then get a minor in exercise science or sports performance or whatever else is buzzing around there and leave yourself options because if you are like me and eventually realize you do not like the coaching lifestyle in terms of moving around every year because the head coach that you were under has to leave or you lose a job because an administration change or whatever it is, you want to leave yourself options. So, yeah, I have the school, uh, the undergrad schooling for um, – medical school and I, I did I actually did everything for it and never applied because I'm going a different route now <laughs> I just can't make up my mind so I'm actually I applied to what's called a physician's assistant um, schooling um, which in America is it, they essentially have all the same responsibilities and abilities as a doctor well, with the exception of they have to answer to a doctor, I guess is the best way to put that. And there's and some of them, the prescriptions they can write aren't exactly the same, but the hours and the liability is much better than what a doctor is. So it's kind of a best of the best worlds thing. But uh, yeah, 
that's kind of my journey with that. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more with what you just said there in terms of studying all the sciences. Uh, I mean, I'm 100% on the same page as you. Uh, that's, you know, that's, it's, that's really what I've done, particularly over the last two or three years. And even right now, it's kind of... Uh, I'm really I'm kind of scaling my way back I'm just going through my biology again then I'm going to just do like a chemistry 101 a physics 101 and then sort of like a maths 101 sure. so sure. just just to get because it's funny a friend of mine said to me one day I've said this in a few other podcasts a friend of mine Daniel Lenny he goes to me one day he was like if you really want to understand the universe you need to know biology and then I was like yeah that makes sense and he goes but to understand biology you need to know chemistry and I was like yes that makes that makes sense as well and he's like but to understand chemistry you need to know physics and yes, then I was, yes. I was I was getting the idea of what he was doing, and he goes, and to understand physics, you need to know maths. And he's like, once you have that hierarchy, then you can start making sense of all the other shit in the world. Yeah, exactly. And again, I, I'm the most. Uh, oh, if you want to put a plug for most influential um, type of thinking type tanks, I guess you could put is the the fuzzy logic section in sports tra- or super training. I'm sorry, is probably one of the best like five-page um, sections in any book because that really sums up science in a whole and it really speaks to, to sports training and physical preparation and all that because mm-hmm. so many people think that chemistry is completely separate, separate yeah. removed from biology and math is different than physics and they're not the same. Well, everything is interrelated and they they kind of mesh together and this comes up in that and you know calculus is used in biology in some means and then you know biological principles are used in chemistry and chemistry is used in physics and physics is used in chemistry and they all just are stirred up in a pot and it's like a Venn diagram to where they bleed into each other yeah, so yeah. that and I'm trying to think of a book that I have I can't think of it off the top of my head that speaks to fuzzy logic and um, there's other terms for that type of thinking. Okay, so, you can stick it in that list in the show notes. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I have to do. Uh, and uh, just one quick, one quick thing. When you were talking about the test that you developed for your guys, and by the way, it's in Ryan's, it's in Ryan's books. Did you ever uh, consider using a phosphate decrinkment test? So have you have you ever heard about that test? So it's it's yeah. it's uh, seven all out sprints for seven seconds with a twenty three second rest, and then you take your the time of your first to your last sprint, which is you know it's a, it's a very a lactic sort of capacity type test. Sure, I, there are so many scientific tests and well researched and uh, peer reviewed tests out there, but when you have one hundred and twenty football athletes and you are one coach who understands what you want to do. The logistics do not fall on your side to mm. be able to do that. Um, there was a lot of things I wish I could have done with testing wise, like that the faucet decretment test and everything like that. But logistics is what got past me. But I knew if I told my assistants and the sport coaches, hey, this is the times we want for this group, this is the times we want for that group, and handed them a stopwatch we could just get it done and see 30 guys sprint at a time. So okay. that's, that's kind of where my, my limitation, I guess, cool. we're, we're looking back at the, you know, some of the, the, the you know, 
limitations and if you're looking at for like research and everything like that and yeah. testing yeah. that was one of the limitations is we just did not have enough manpower and the logistics did not were not in our favor by any means okay ryan williams where can the listeners find out more about you sure so i have my website which is www.willpreparefitness.com all one word um, under that in the resources tab you can find various products of mine and buddy morris's one being the american football physical preparation physical preparation ebook the ironworks preparation uh hardbound book or actually it's called perfect bound which is available through amazon and vervanti publishing um, and then finally, there is the American Football Physical Preparation BioForce Project course yeah. um, that is available on the BioForceProject.com, or if you go to that resource um, webpage through my website, you'll be able to uh, find your way to purchase that. Brilliant, brilliant, and uh, I mean, I think that that's only going for like ninety-seven dollars, and it's like an unbelievable product. So, guys, check it out, and I'll have all those links in the show notes. Ryan, just stick around for literally another like 10, 15 seconds after I press stop here and we'll say our goodbyes offline. So guys, what an absolute legendary show. Absolutely fantastic information from Ryan and I'm, I'm delighted that he made time to do this interview with me today. So to everyone listening, if you can, keep sharing the podcast around. If you can leave reviews on iTunes, that would be great. For now, guys, take care. I'll talk to you soon and stay strong. <laughs>